Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Leather Funnel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. First published in McClure's Magazine, November 1902. And uh, I have read a ton of um, Arthur Conan Doyle, but he wrote at least two tons. So I don't think I've read half of his stuff yet, Um, or maybe about half. I've read a lot of Sherlock Holmes, and I've read a lot of his novels. Um, There's a few that I haven't, like The White Company, and he wrote a a couple of Professor Challenger books that I haven't read yet. And uh, he, he wrote on all sorts of different topics and themes. This is a little bit after his rejection of uh, Sherlock Holmes and then coming back to it again. Uh, but it feels a little bit or a lot like a Sherlock Holmes story, too. What do you mean uh, it feels like a Sherlock Holmes story? Well, you notice how in uh, the Sherlock Holmes short stories, usually Watson is standing at the window and Holmes is reading the newspaper and then extraordinary or something like that happens. Um, Or another way that those stories can start is um, in 1881, like that. (laughs) Um, I had not moved out, you know, like when we get a sort of a retelling of an adventure, um, and there's a rational detective who has a kind of uh, method. And and then our narrator, uh, the Watson character in the Sherlock Holmes, um, is uh, sympathetic, but not the genius uh, or the passionate collector of Holmes. Right? I think that that's exactly, you know, that formula which is so popular, was so popular, is so popular, is in here too. We've got a detective-like figure and the friend, quasi-friend, who they're living together for the one day, right? Um, And then they have this extraordinary adventure, sort of, together. I thank you. I understand what you mean. So here's how I would see that. Um, the home stories, which uh, follow the classic formula of the tale of the great detective that's first sort of fully achieved by Poe mm-hmm. uh, about 40 years before um, Doyle, uh, there's a, a great detective who gathers clues and matches his mind with that of the, uh, the, the miscreant. There is a narrator who gets to observe what the detective is doing, but not what the detective is thinking. Right. So if the narrator Watson tells us something, uh, we're not angry at him for not letting us understand the significance of the detective having crawled around the floor and picked something up off the, you know, the corner uh, where the floor meets the wall because Watson doesn't know what it is. If the detective were the narrator, that would be a different story. In the leather funnel, we have a narrator and the narrator is telling us a story, but it appears to be 
in the same way that the Doyle's, uh, that the Sherlock Holmes stories are, it appears to be a nested narrative that mm-hmm. is an outer narrator, an inner detective. The detective is solving a crime. Um, but I think that the fact of the nesting is handled differently here, Jesse. Um, for one thing, well, let, let me give a quick summary of the story um, so that it'll, any who haven't read it, I hope it'll make it clearer. And I hope they read it in the version that you've made mm-hmm. available on the website because the illustrations are terrific. Um, but we have a narrator who never gives his name. Um, and he talks about his friend, Lionel Dacre, or Lionel Dacre, or Dacre, D-A-C-R-E. Uh, and they've come to know each other when they were both doing research at the British Museum in London. But Dacre is a Frenchman. And our fellow goes back to France to do some stuff. And he, as promised, says, well, I'll come visit you. But when he visits him, uh, it's an evening. The train service is not good. And the fellow says, well, please stay here. I wouldn't want you going, going out, although the only place you can have is this sofa in the study. So they spend the evening talking about these antiquities that Dacre has accumulated. He really loves ancient weirdo stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that one of the ancient weirdo items that he has is a leather funnel, uh, the kind of thing they believe would be used for, say, filling a wine cask. But this leather funnel is odd in a number of ways that get described to us. And in order to figure out what it might mean, um, Dacre says, well, you know, when you study the psychology of dreams, it turns out that you can often um, find something out about uh an object or its history or its significance in human life um, by sleeping with it near you uh, the same way that they put a piece of wedding cake under the pillow of a bride. So she will have a wonderful set of dreams on her first night as a married woman. So our guy, our narrator, um, sleeps with this leather funnel next to him and he has a dream and the dream is one of a woman about to be tortured um, and he shrieks because it's such a horrifying image and he wakes himself up. Dacre comes into the room and then says, ah, did you see it? And it turns out that Dacre already knew the answer. Mm -hmm. So unlike the home stories here, our narrator does have access to the same information. The reason he doesn't have all the information is that He's not willing to just keep observing the horrors, which is different, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a difference in character. And I would say that while the, the home stories are famous for their atmospherics, mm-hmm. and indeed they can be read over and over, even though you know the endings, because the atmosphere is so gorgeously laid out. And we have that here, too. The atmospherics are terrific. But in the home stories... We are more concerned with the notion of deduction and the atmospherics than we are with character. But here, I think we actually have a story very much about character. Yeah. That is, we're concerned with the character of the narrator even more than we are with the character of the collector, Dacre. Um, Although his character is, I think, crucial because 
he, in his success, which is demonstrated by having the narrator have the same kind of dream, he, in his success, the, the collector, Dacre, makes us ask if there really is a firm line between superstition and science. So thematically, it's an important, uh, it's an important story. But the ending of it uh, brings us back really to, uh, to the question of character. What kind of person was this woman who was going to be tortured? She actually, because of the strength of character in withstanding the torture, becomes almost a heroine to her contemporaries in the 16th or 17th century. Um, not ju- although at first she's seen as a murderess, and uh, and the ending here um, brings us back to the, the the funnel, which had been used apparently for uh, giving her water torture. Uh, we see strange marks as if someone tried to cut it. Um, the ending of the story and this, I ask, pointing to the marks yeah. upon the leathern neck. It's a the leather funnel. She was a cruel tigress, said Dacre as he turned away. I think it is evident that like other tigresses, her teeth were both strong and sharp. And I think we're supposed to come away believing, wow, you know. You do strange and horrible things, but you might actually be an admirable person. And that kind of, you know, wait a minute, can that be that a murderess is an admirable person? Someone who believes in superstition is really scientific. Someone who fools his guest into having a nightmare can actually be beneficial. I mean, yeah. all kinds of interesting questions of, of character and morals in this story. And I think that that makes that in some sense, um, Different, not only in the way nesting is handled, but in the point of the nesting. It's not just to keep us ignorant. It's to help us see diverse views of a story that we get twice. Once from the narrator and once from the inner character, Dacre. I agree. Um, I I think you've you've outlined a lot of the the differences very nicely. And I want to point out, you know, everybody knows that well, maybe not everybody knows. A lot of people know <laughs> that um, Conan Doyle lifted the idea of a detective, uh, sort of consulting detective from Poe. Um, he was a great admirer of Poe's, and um, I, I think he's lifting here as well. Uh, the story, the inner story, uh, I guess the deepest level of the story in here is that of uh, the woman. Mary Dobre, Marquise de Brinvilliers, um, who is a real person, and her torture was a real thing that actually happened. Um, and there was actually a subsequent series of trials that also had torture used as a way of, you know, widening the conspiracy. This was a, a, a sort of the most horrible part of the story, and it is, it, it is I think, designed to be a horror story. Um, and in the same way, um, it is designed almost to uh, reconstru- reconstruct the kind of horror that is in another Edgar Allan Poe story called The Pit and the Pendulum. I, I know which one you're thinking of. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say The Pit and the Pendulum. Is that what you were thinking? That's just what I thought you were going for. Exactly. We've even got the judges, right, who uh, – and in fact, the way you, when you read the pit and the pendulum, it's it's disconcerting. Like you don't know where you are or what's going on. 
um, you're seeing it as if in a dream. And there is a, um, a sort of a staggering level of increasing horror and increasing horror as the, as the story goes on. And then there's the oh, escape at the end. Which actually, it's a rescue rather than it, an escape. Indeed, it is a rescue. Um, and here we have a, a sort of a similar pattern. We're about to see the the horror that is then later described, um, and then the narrator says to Dacker um, or Dacre, uh, "No, no, don't tell me any of the details." Right? He sort of outlines the the thing, but he doesn't actually go into it. And to me. Um, the the actual inner inner story is the least interesting part of the story I, although it's it's fascinating i didn't know that it, before reading this story i didn't hadn't heard of marie dobre or the marquis marquis or, or the murders or any any of that stuff so reading it i i found myself interested in it but I, I'm so entranced by the setup and the atmosphere that is created, including in with the illustrations. That's what struck me when I when I saw these illustrations. I'm like, this is amazing. And what's interesting <laughs> is some of the illustrations they're they're impressionistic. So there's a scene um, where the, on the second page, in fact, um, where a person is crossing the street carrying the funnel sort of looking as it uh, as he approaches Dacre's house. I assume that that's Dacre. Um, however, that scene never actually happens because the description at the bottom, his house was that of a, was that small one with the iron railings. Um, well, that th this is an impressionistic version of the story. And then later on, we've got a scene illustrated um that has the funnel in front of, in front of the narrator who looks a little bit like uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, and a massive shadow is cast over the back of the room, and that is um, just great impressionistic, sort of taking what the story is laying down and going with it, and this continues on the the major illustration right before the end. Um, we have the hero of the story the narrator waking up and behind him is the whole horrible scene that's not actually described right right envisioned by ghosts and this is um this is actually a ghost story it's not just um uh you know uh, uh, what what is this mysterious object it is a ghost story and and it has like Traditions that go into the future, uh, into horror, horror and fantasy stories, and it's also this is also a kind of science fiction story according to Doyle, anyways, in that all of the um, the uh, books that he collects on the science of dreams, the Dacre collects on the science of dreams, are going to be one day thought of as the foundations for uh, sciences. And you can see his argument. Um, however, we also know that this is not come to pass. And this is sort of the folly and the and the wonder of Conan Doyle himself, right? He he is notorious for um, being, you know, creating the ultimate intelligent detective who doesn't care about, you know, 
psychic vampires. He he shows them to be real, uh, real murderers. And yet he's also the guy who uh, pro- promulgated a, a quite obvious hoax of photographing fairies. He believed that he could communicate psychically with his son, even though there was strong evidence that he was being scammed. This is yeah, he was a famous proponent of spiritualism. He gave he he threw over his uh, his native hereditary Christianity in favor of spiritualism, mm-hmm. um, and yet you know, I, I, I must say that an atheist would observe that he just went from one superstition to another. Mm. It's 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 a. It's a it's an interesting case because um, there are there's a terrific sort of sense that yeah maybe it's true that objects I mean, the central premise of this is kind of that of psychometry if you're familiar with this sort of hoaxy paranormal phenomenon well it is it's bullshit but I'll just explain it it it's <laughs> it's basically um, you go to a psychic and you give them a token of yours or of someone and they claim to be able to um uh, get information about the owner and the person who possessed it so this is kind of related to what's going on with the with the leather funnel right the name on the funnel is actually carved into it is that of dobre right and yet the crown doesn't belong well yeah it's it's a bit confusing, but the important part is this object has had engraven into it the history, but that history is obscured. So all objects, right, have a history to them. You you pick them up, you use them, you m- might put a little dent in it or a scratch or however it is, but it doesn't, we don't think, retain a sort of spiritual connection to the owner and the user of it right when i buy a used phone and i whom do you mean by we well me for example when i buy a used phone from somebody and it's had his hard drive wiped i don't believe that it has spiritual connections to the previous owner i know that it has been used but it it doesn't have like i cannot number the churches and cathedrals that i have visited in europe where I was encouraged and did often visit the so-called treasury within these buildings to see things like the finger bone of St. John sure. or a vial of the breast milk of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and as it has been said, and I imagine from my own experience that it's true, that if we took all of the splinters of the one true cross right. – that are kept in these treasuries, we would be able to build another cathedral. That's right. Uh, but, and that's why I said, what do you mean we? Um, I don't, you know, look at these things and think, aha, there's some numinous power that resides in this because of its provenance. I don't even believe in its provenance. But, you know, there's one of the world's most populous and powerful religions that's based on exactly that. Right, right. Yeah, it's it's true. And and that's sort of the the tension I think between our our ex, like our expectations 
and uh, what we're willing to pay for. <laughs> so people will pay for, um, you know, so if I had a uh, cigarette case that used to belong to a famous politician, you know, JFK, I don't know if he smoked, but if he did, he might have had a cigarette case. And if it has the initials JFK on it, and it has the right provenance, then this suddenly becomes incredibly valuable. This is this this is the cigarette case he had in his pocket when he was uh, deciding on the Bay of Pigs or whatever, right? Um, and then suddenly it has this gravitas. And if you put it under your pillow and slept with it, you would somehow be connected to it. People actually believe this in a certain sense. And yet, I think that this photo photograph scan of the magazine uh, with this story in it, with these pictures in it, are much stronger than without the pictures. I've seen versions of this story online that are just the plain text, and I'm haunted by the images, and I think people without those images aren't as haunted. And so the, there is something going on here, and that's what is at the core of this story, uh, is the atmosphere is what makes it so great. And the the setup, the nesting of of the storytelling, even on the first page where we get this description of the house and the private collection and all the books, right? The Talmudic, Kabbalistic, and magical uh, works that are in uh, Dacre's private collection is, is, is wonderful. But then we find out, listen to this, his knowledge was greater than his wisdom and his powers were far superior to his character. Again, coming back to what you pointed out, the character. The small bright eyes buried deeply in his fleshy face twinkled with intelligence and an unabated curiosity of life. But they were the eyes of a sensualist and an egoist. I don't know what kind of judgment that is, but it certainly gives me a certain kind of feeling. And then this is the line that gets me. Enough of the man, for he is dead now, poor devil, dead at the very time that he made sure that he had at last discovered the elixir of life. Which is a wonderful, wonderful, uh, suspenseful st- assertion that never gets picked up in the rest of the story. Indeed, and yet this story itself lives on, right? The, yes. That's, so, that's what's so amazing is that Conan Doyle has discovered the elixir of life in a certain sense, right? He's managed to make himself at least temporarily immortal, right? We are still reading him. This is more than 100 years later. And the story is set in in the 1882, or most of it's set in 1882. And then, of course, it's from the 16th century. So there's these connections going 17th. back and back and back. 17th, 1600s. Right. Yeah. I, I think I think that, that this is the power of of sort of the weaving of a, of a magical spell. And when, when I went back and read, read it and reread it, um, I noted that again, with, um, just with the illustrations, this line that I hadn't noted before on page 24 of our version, um, that giant illustration is accompanied by a line that says, I burst with a shriek into my own life. This is when he wakes up just before, our um, poor victim is about to be filled with the water. 
Right. Um, that is one of the effects of of filling people with water, right? <laughs> is that they possibly will burst. And just the fact that it's it's coached in this horror language that we recognize ourselves, right? When we get to the point in the story where we're, we're, we find out what the, this funnel was used for, and it's called, she was subject to the question and the extraordinary question, I was like, oh my God, they had the euphemisms back then too. Enhanced interrogation is a euphemism, right? Yep. It's a horror euphemism. And and, and the fact that this story is set in the night was from uh, 1902, and we've got a Doyle's uh, avatar, Doyle's narrator, recoiling in horror at the prospect of this kind of torture, and yet here we are a century later, and it's still not repudiated. Right? It's this is this is. Yeah, we should we should make clear. Um, the ordinary question was not just a euphemism; it was quite specific. It was forcing eight pints of water down the uh, the throat of the victim in order to get the victim to give you whatever information you wanted. And if the court thought that the victim would be recalcitrant, then the victim could be subject to the extraordinary question, which was 16 pints of water. And no one can survive having 16 pints of water force, forced into their body. I mean, they, they burst. They just, you can't do it. Um, so this isn't just a euphemism. It's a euphemism for a well-known and quite methodical practice. Yeah, and it wasn't I, I, hidden. It was it was like public, right? Oh, yes. I'd like to point out, if I may, uh, in terms of the atmospherics, I, I think you're right. that The illustrations are really valuable. Um, I would point out that in one way or another, whether it's a shadow thrown across the back or someone's hand in someone's hand, um, the leather funnel is represented in every illustration mm -hmm. in this story. Mm -hmm. This story is richly illustrated. It's a 5,300-word story for which McClure's has paid for five illustrations. Every one of those illustrations has a funnel in it. Um, I think that the story, if one has an active enough ma imagination, could be quite as good without the illustrations, but my gosh, um, those illustrations really nail it. And I think it's not accidental. My, my hat is off to the illustrator. In that very first paragraph, which helps set the atmospherics, we're told that uh, of this house, which was just down from Arc de Triomphe, I fancy that it had been there long before the avenue was constructed, for the gray tiles were stained with lichens and the walks were mildewed and discolored with age. It looked a small house from the street, five windows in front, if I remember right, but it deepened into a single long chamber at the back. It was there that Dacre had that singular library of occult literature and the fantastic curiosities and so on. Five houses, uh, five windows in the front, if I recall correctly. Um, if you look at a face, mm -hmm. you've got two eyes, two nostrils and a mouth. The illustrator picks this up. Yep. Two eyes, two nostrils and a mouth. He makes the house look like a head. You go into what looks like a small head, right? But in the inside, there is the single vast room 
of the brain, the mind, what have you. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Dacre, it is a library of occult literature, mm -hmm. which you know, so the illustrator has captured these hints that are there. And I think it's not random that there are five illustrations to go with those mm -hmm. five small windows because there are five different views of the world of the leather tunnel. Excuse me, leather funnel. I, I think if we pay attention to some of them, we see some of the other themes of the story coming out. For example, you pointed out that there is the first full page illustration shows someone who might well be Dacre. It could have been Dacre's agent, but someone going across the street toward Dacre's house and holding a funnel in his hand. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a look on that illustration on the right, just below the center, there are two women standing and a beggar crouching, mm -hmm. holding his hat up to have some presumably alms put into it. It's sort of the opposite of the funnel. Mm -hmm. We don't know that when we see this, right? The, he's looking to get sustenance, but the agent or, or Dacre himself is bringing something that would actually um, uh, be uh, the opposite of sustenance, right? Mm -hmm. right? It, would, it would destroy you. Um, the two women are looking in two different directions. Yep. One is looking to help the beggar, and the other is looking a little askance at that. Like the two ways we have of understanding the actual victim of the extraordinary question. You know, is she a tigress who should be admired for her ferocity and mm -hmm. willingness to stand up for herself? Or is she a murderess? Look what she's done to the men in her life for whatever reason may have motivated her. These illustrations capture those questions of, in this case, what is the point of something that's good that could be turned to something bad? What is character? You know, when we first get the funnel described, we're told that it looks like the kind of thing that could be used to fill a cask of wine. Right. Well, you know, wine presumably is a good thing, but in vino veritas, mm. we take enough of it and we have these these ways of speaking which may offer our truths and we have these visions which may give us new truth and so as scientific as all of this is the story is one of the spirit somehow being more important and it leaves its marks that last that last image of the recognition that the 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 scratches around the the funnel are the teeth of this tigress tell us that in this world, no matter how strong we are, we can, in fact, leave a mark, mm. but it may not save us. Um, it's a very uh, profound story, uh, not, as you say, just for the 17th century or even the 19th century, but for us in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 22nd century, there will be more to say. <laughs> And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. <laughs>